Jim Round is our featured guest on the Scholars Podcast today. Jim is the recently appointed CEO at Vic Return, the scheme coordinator of the new Victorian Container Deposit Scheme. Jim is a 2014 John Monash Scholar. He went to the London School of Economics to complete a master's degree in economic history. Before his Vic return role, Jim spent many years working as senior political advisor and senior staff member to many high-profile Australian politicians, including a prime minister, attorney general and premier, which I'm sure he'll tell us about if he can. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Justin. Fantastic to be here. Jim, can you share with us your journey leading up to your current role as CEO at Vic Return and how your previous experiences in leadership positions have prepared you for this role? Thanks, Justin. Yes, I've had a really lucky run in my career. I started many, many years ago um, my career working as a little economic analyst for a um, consulting firm that was bought out by Big Four organization. Uh, and then uh, I should say originally I studied um, economics, um, politics and philosophy, which was a great grounding for government work and, and for thinking about policy. Um, uh, when the Labor Party won election in 2007, I cold called a lot of people who I, who I didn't know anything about and just shot my resume everywhere. Um, and I was lucky enough to get um, an interview for Julie Gillard's office. I went and sat the interview, uh, you know, put my best foot forward and they g- gave me a job as quite a, you know, a junior economic advisor role in that office. Uh, and I uh, it was an incredible privilege and very quickly I was able to move up in that office and work for um, some amazing people there, obviously Julie Gillard being an exceptional leader um, and uh, learned a lot from watching her and um, working for her chief of staff and also working um, with a lot of other very thoughtful, intelligent, uh, purpose-driven people. So that was an incredible experience. After that, I um, worked as chief of staff to Mark Dreyfus and as you said, he became attorney general and uh, again, Every politician has a different style and different ways of working. Julia Gillard was a real, an incredible negotiator and manager of people and watching the way in which she used her decency and charm to get good outcomes was um, really instructive for me. Um, And Mark, again, is someone who's very um, purpose-driven and a really great person to work for. And he was, um, you know, he's a lawyer's lawyer. You know, all my friends with law degrees were a bit surprised that I ended up working for him given I'm an economist by training, but that was a really that was a real privilege and a great person to work for. So when when Labor lost in 2013, I went, I did a little bit of consulting and I applied for the John Monash Scholarship. And I'd been fortunate enough to work on the stimulus packages for the global financial crisis when I was in Julia's office. I was quite involved in putting together a number of the components, working with the public service and with the uh, Prime Minister's office at that time, because Julia was then Deputy Prime Minister. And I really thought that I needed to get a better understanding of economic history and also history of economic thought, which is not something that's always um, heavily emphasised in Australian um, economics degrees these days. So I went and studied. A, it was a pretty unusual master's degree, uh, and I, you know, John Monash Scholarship did give me funding to go and do a PhD as well. I went over there, studied hard, I learned a lot, and um, 
well, I got my wife pregnant. We decided to come back here. So I never completed the PhD, but got a lot from that experience. I have to say, it was a real learning experience. You can uh, going back to study in your early thirties, once you've had very intense and senior jobs, and I did. I did find that a challenge. What was challenging about it, Jim? Oh well, you're in a very immediate and responsive environment, and when you have, you know, when you have staff, when you're you used to running hard at problems, whereas. Um, it took me a while to reset the way that I worked. You're back in the classroom. You're back in the classroom and it's it's a slower pace and you're coming at things from a more theo- – and I did a highly theoretical master's, right? I didn't do an applied master's of public administration, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get back to theory and um, and actually have a look at history. But, yeah, it's it's a big it's a big change, right? I should say as well, um, the London School of Economics has turned out some of the very great economic minds like Piketty went there and Asimoglu and they you know their alumnus has got a lot of Nobel Prize winners so it's a very you know if you want to study economics in Europe that's where you go it also made me realize I'd had a very good training in my Australian degrees and I didn't feel that there was a huge difference in terms of the the quality of the student cohort it was much more international I should say and many more other perspectives and also all of these Europeans who can speak seven or eight languages um, made me feel embarrassed to be an Australian who can only speak English. And one of my friends who's Swedish over there said they considered it uneducated if you did your master's in Swedish rather than in English um, in Sweden. So it gives you a sense of how um, good some of the Northern Europeans in particular are at multiple languages. It was really useful for me intellectually, but I did find it a shift and I did find it hard getting back to the classroom. But um, I... It was an unusual degree and I didn't think some of the things I studied would be super applicable to my uh, the next steps in my career. That longer perspective of the demographic and economic drivers of social change was really useful in um, thinking about public policy in a critical way. And also some of the subjects I did were highly unusual. Like I did one subject on the history of um, central planning. <laughs> I did another one on how we measure things, frames, policy decisions effectively. And both of those were very useful in thinking about policy um, choices in the in the um, jobs I've had since. So yeah, that was after that, I, I went back to Australia, took a job as a senior executive in the Department of Health and Human Services, running their analytics division um, as a public servant. And I, I should say that job... In that job, I learned more about more about management than I did about analytics because I, I had a, a very big team in that role. There was about 100 people and um, I had to go through a place where we realigned that team and, and directed it um, towards um, impactful research. So that was a big job. Uh, I did get pulled back into the political um, side of things and had a good opportunity to work for Dan Andrews, who's very incredible um, retail politician, and it was amazing to look at how he considers things and and thinks about what the community will receive or how the community will be impacted on by the policies he puts in place. So that was a really great lens and frame to um, apply to um, policies, and actually aligns with, and that's the whole point. You should be in policy or politics for to actually think about how what you do impacts the community. That was really great. And, you know, in that role, I was there as a policy guy as well, you know, a skills-based appointment, um, given the other policy roles I'd had. Uh, and then, you know, I've got young kids and I went back to um, 
applied for a gig and went into the Department of Jobs precincts in regions. Yeah, I started in urban renewal there, which was, again, a really interesting area and drew on a lot of the studies I'd um, I'd actually done in economic history and um, history of economic geography. That was really fun and, and about, you know, Australia hasn't always been great at accommodating new population growth. And particularly when we put big transport infrastructure in, we don't always think about the planning system that goes around that big transport infrastructure. If you think about that, you can actually get a better social outcome. So that was a really fun um, gig. But unfortunately, after about a year of doing that, COVID kicked in and, and the department went into mobilization mode. And and Victoria did it the toughest during during COVID and lockdown. Yes. It was impressive how much the public service just people were very committed and everyone put their hand up and said, we'll help. They said... For me, they said, who's worked on a stimulus package before? Because at that time, they thought I would have beaten COVID. And I maybe foolishly put my hand up. And then I went into the COVID vortex for about three years. So, um, and it was pretty, yeah. Uh, listen, I, I learned a lot through that. We ended up, like I, I ended up, I think I started with a team of eight. And then by the time I left, I had hundreds and hundreds of people working for me and I was running a call center. I had teams out on the ground who spoke multiple languages talking to communities. I should say I was on the um, business side. So we negotiated with the health department on some of the restrictions and really tried to help them understand what we needed to do to keep supply chains functioning when, when we're shutting down the economy. That was a really intense, um, stressful, very stressful, but also rewarding time. And then I was... Um, after that, I kind of got deployed on helping set up um, the Com Games for a bit. But then, I'll, uh, to be honest, I'd, I'd done a pretty long stint in there and I thought it's time to for me to step out and do something else. So I kind of rolled off um, state government and then rolled into this job, which was... Find your, yes, you find yourself the CEO at, at Vic Return. So tell us, what what is the Victorian uh, container deposit scheme all about? Give us the details. So I think most people would, if they're from Victoria, would remember cash for cans, which was, um, you know, in the 80s, 90s, when you, you took your can back, you got some cash back. Or, or most people around Australia would be aware of the South Australian container deposit scheme, which, and you see those, that 10 cent mark on all those cans and bottles around the country, which says you get 10 cents if you return this container at, in, in a participating state. Until now, Victoria hasn't been a participating state. So simply put, it's when, whenever you've consumed a beverage and you take it back to a, a collection point or you take it to a reverse spending machine, you can um, return that beverage and you'll get 10 cents back. Uh, and that's all about encouraging people to bring back their containers, making sure they're all recycled and, and making sure that we get litter you know, off our streets, out of our waterways, off our parks, out of our parks. And also making sure that we've got a, a clean stream of material for recycling because it's been sorted by the community. Where do they go, Jim? Once once you've collected everything, what happen, What happens to the, the products? It, it depends on the particular product. So there'll be, um, when the scheme is up and running, after about a year of operation, there'll be more than 600 um, collection points. And then the, the, the government has put really strong obligations in the... Um, in the contracts with the organisations that are kind of collecting those products to ensure that they are all recycled. 
So it, it depends. Like there are a number of um, domestic processing facilities for plastics, for instance, uh, and so they'll go to. It depends. Some of them will go up to Wodonga. Others will. There's new facilities opening in Melbourne West where they'll be processed. Um, things like aluminium will be crushed down into one uh, into kind of big blocks, and aluminium is a very expensive and valuable commodity. So they'll be sold basically, and to be melted down into other things. So um, often with the cans, they'll be they crushed into. I think it's about a 330 kilogram block, and then we sell them uh, abroad because. People want it. Who buys them? It'll depend on which network operator collects it, uh, and um, they all have different different kind of arrangements with different providers. But aluminium is, as I said, um, highly in demand. It's really been the last couple of years that um, Australia has really souped up its um, plastic recycling, um, which is great. So a lot of that will be processed near us. Yep. You mentioned something earlier, Jim, that I'd like to go back to. You said, I think you're in your early 30s when you essentially paused your career, went to the London School of Economics to begin your master's. What What are your general thoughts on that mid-career, if I'm getting the, the ages right, mid-career pivot into postgraduate study, particularly in your case, uh, in, an, in an overseas location because a lot of people come out of university and then they go straight into post-grab without hitting the workforce as such you've you've done it differently I'm, I'm keen on your thoughts and 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 what benefit it provided you doing it a little a little later in life it's a good question and I did I did six years in my under I did two undergrads and kicked around Melbourne Uni for six years first time around. So <laughs> I, I probably, and it was kind of interesting. You go to the UK and a lot of those guys just do a one, three year degree, whereas a lot of Australians, certainly my generation, did doubles. Just for the record, what were your, your undergrad degrees? I did an economics degree and a degree in liberal arts, politics, and philosophy, which, and you can see economic history is a mix of all those three things in, in, in one kind of degree. So, yeah, I got a lot from it. I think it's easier to do your master's if you go straight through because you're used to studying and you've been working in a different way. Most people who do mid-career master's do much more applied master's where they reflect on all of the different skills you need to manage something, which is not what I did. I went back and did a quite an academic master's. But I think that worked for me because I was hungry to reflect a little bit on what I've been doing. Um, if I, if I, the only thing I'd do differently if I had my time again is I probably would have done a two-year program rather than a 13-month program. I was, I was hungry to get back into the workforce, but um, I really felt that I only scratched the surface. And maybe this is a good sign that I was learning something, but I, I went in thinking I knew a lot about economics and I went out feeling like I knew a little bit about economics. Yeah, <laughs> So that was that probably showed that I was learning, but um, that would be my only comment. But yeah, I think you do need to be kind to yourself if you're going back after having an intense career, and also yeah, just be realistic about what you'll get from it as well. So I learn a lot, and I got a huge amount from it. But and again, this probably sounds weird. I probably spent too much time studying. I did go and like being in Europe was amazing. We did go traveling a lot and. Living in East London was great with the music scene there and theatre, and we we did we did hit that pretty hard, so that was great. But um, I feel like my undergrad, I was a bit more 
balanced in in the approach I took. Whereas I thought I've got this scholarship, I've got a master's, I've just got to hit the library hard, and I did. And I, I probably read every reading things on my reading list, which was massive. Like the LSE is you're ridiculous. a nerd. Yeah, yes. well, I went, but I I did that because I'm like I've got this scholarship, I should do that. Can't waste the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. but and that was good. But I think just a more moderate you know, a more kind of balanced approach, you know, um, I think would have been better in terms of, um, you know, getting out and enjoying the abroad experience. So that that would be my only comment to other scholars. I think just take a balanced approach to life and, um, uh, you know, um, take all the opportunity that studying abroad affords you. Yeah. Jim, you've had the privilege of working with some amazing people, some amazing political leaders. What leadership traits have you picked up from them that now influences the way you work uh, with your colleagues? What, uh, what leadership traits do I aspire to more? I wouldn't say that I've um, <laughs> kind of hit some of, uh, and I should say as well, some of the public servants that I worked for um, were really impressive. Um, I had one former boss um, who, uh, in the public service, who was just in my time in DJPR, who was just phenomenal at bringing together people, um, good people and energizing them, respecting them, delegating appropriately and yeah, energizing them and, and focusing them on an outcome. So I really, I thought that was very impressive and I tried to emulate his style of building a team. I personally think like with anyone, you go through a journey and I've had a number of different jobs and you try and pick the best bit from each lady you work for, right? So but you, you've got to bring your own style to it and understand your own strengths and weaknesses as well. My general approach is, and this sounds tried, is, um, but it's really about getting the best people you can um, and energizing them, respecting them, empowering them and supporting them. And you should get people who are better than you at all the thing you hire them for. So um, when I was in DJPR, I set up a really great economics unit which I would say was the best economics unit in the Victorian government. Others would have different views, but um, I'd say that's because the head of that unit is a much better quantitative economist than me, and all of his team are much better quantitative economists than me. Um, and, you know, when I had a legal unit, obviously not a lawyer, but I'd find the best lawyer I could and get them. Or my comms person um, would be the best comms person I could find. And so for me, I'm a generally a all-rounder I'm, I'm decent at a number of things but i'm not the best at anything and i think if you're a humble leader who respects people um for what they bring and listens very carefully to their advice and empowers them to make decisions when you are able to do that you'll get the best results so i really i have to say i picked that up from watching a number of key public servant leaders that i work for um and then some of the political leadership um watching how different political leaders worked, um, seeing how Julia Gillard shared a meeting, right, for instance, or... Well, without, without giving anything or giving too much away, I'm not asking you to do that, but bring us inside the room. How would how would she do that, Jim? I just, with a huge amount of um, intellect and emotional intelligence um, and decency as well, and she was not someone who would just talk to the most powerful person in the room, which I really respect and I would have thought is something that anyone who's a Labor leader should have that trait. So she was very good at reading the room, coming in, making everyone feel relaxed and empowered and and driving to a really um, good outcome 
in a way that was respectful. Um, and she would also work out intuitively how to frame a problem to get people aligned uh, in terms of landing on a solution. That's not to say that sometimes you don't have a fractious meeting that you're chairing, but you can generally find a point of you know shared objectives. And she was excellent at finding that. She was also just excellent at persuasion. And so, yeah, just watching that and listening to that, I hopefully picked up some of those tools um, from her. So that's, yeah, that was really impressive um, to watch and a real privilege to do the six-year stint with with um, her and then with Mark um, up in Canberra. So, yeah. The Monash Foundation the, has, a, has a motto of giving back to Australia. So you've done your scholarship at uh, the London School of Economics. How do you now think that you're helping to live up to that motto and contribute and and give back to Australia? Yeah, I hope I, hope I am. I'm, most of my career has been very publicly focused in terms of public, you know, purpose-driven. Um, and you, for, in my career, it's predominantly been about policy change. Um, and I've worked on a number of policies um, with others to help, to be frank, expand the welfare state and look after those who need some additional support. So I was involved with others in um, helping design the free TAFE policy and supporting the Premier to do that, which is all about making um, uh, tertiary education of a technical nature free in Victoria. And and that um, led to hundreds of thousands of um, kids and, and, and young adults and, and older um, uh, Victorians uh, going back and studying in training that will get them a, a job um, in occupations of high demand. So I'm really proud of that work. Um, I was also involved in helping bolster, uh, helping create a, a new public dental um, system. Uh, so, uh, and this is about every um, public school student in Victoria now gets pre free public dental. Fantastic. Amazing. That really came from work that I did when I was in the analytics division and we saw that um, Victoria is one of the worst in the OECD on, uh, on on kids' dental outcomes because we've got, it's very expensive dental care and and there's a lot of avoidable hospitalizations caused by problems with kids' teeth. Again, I worked with many others um, in the bureaucracy and in the political class to really advocate for that policy and really proud that that was adopted and has been rolled out. And my current job is really about so my current job's not in the public service um you know we're an independent not-for-profit um we're heavily regulated by government we've got a contract with government to administer this scheme but uh, the container deposit scheme but for me this was really taking this job applying to this job and getting this job was really about continuing to round myself out as a public administrator and learning more and more about delivery and you know i'm a real i'm a policy person but I think um, you really need, uh, the, the, the further I go in my career, you need to understand how something's going to be implemented in order to design a good policy that will endure and actually have its intended effect. So um, this is both a good thing in itself, um, you know, reducing waste and increasing recycling and getting the community involved in doing that through the container deposit scheme. It's a good in itself that's going to make Victoria a better place, but it's also going to help me um, grow and develop as a as a leader and hopefully be able to make further contributions down the track um, uh, if I, you know, if I work in policy down the track again or, or in what it, 
whatever else I do. So, yeah. Well answered. Uh, You mentioned before about emotional intelligence. It's a term that's often used, but I'd say perhaps not understood very well. So in your view, uh, why is emotional intelligence a critical attribute of successful leaders? I think it's just about understanding the different things that motivate people and seeing and understanding how people receive information and feedback so that operating not just on the problem of the day in terms of what you're talking about with your team or with stakeholders or with people that might have you know positional power over you um you're also understanding what's driving them um from either a values perspective or emotionally and where they're at to be frank if you're an empathetic person who who can pick up on those cues you're much better placed to be able to get to a resolution around pop problems because often people are saying something but there's actually something else going on, which they may not agree with the policy. And it's not about the policy. It's about some other context going on in their life or about the way that they're engaged or or, or if the policy was framed in a different way, they might be on board. But it's about just being able to understand people's motivations in a deeper sense. So I think it's it's more important than probably any other attribute in leadership and because once you get to a certain level, it's all about motivating people to do what you need them to do. And that's about emotions rather than about um, about intellect. And good leaders don't have to be academic or smart to succeed. Um, and some of the best leaders are not at all, and nor should they be. Well, j- just following on from that, and, and perhaps the, the final question to you, Jim, what, what are some of the strategies that you rely on to create teams that excel to motivate them and and to drive innovation? Uh, Yeah, I think, well, there's a couple of things. Hiring's very important and you can't, you should always trust your gut and you should always hire the best people you can. You should always hire for diversity as well and understand that people have different parts in life and different perspectives. So I would never hire a team that is just all ex-John Wanesh scholars. you, you want to hire people from different backgrounds. You want to have hire people who've gone to different universities. You want diversity of socioeconomic status, of um, race, of religion in your team. So you get a good diverse uh, kind of team with different perspectives. And then you want to bring enthusiasm to work and a bit of fun because it's a lot of your life. And um, you should be projecting that energy as a leader and, and taking things not too seriously all of the time because things can get tense and stressful. You need to be able to step back and and, and generate that energy with your team um, to get things done. It's much easier to foster a great high-performing culture when you have full-purpose work, when there's clear set of objectives that are materially um, important for the community or that align with people's values it's much easier to create a really great, fun working environment that's focused on outcomes. Where there's not clarity of purpose, that's where there's a challenge and that's where you have to work out and work with your team to get that clarity of purpose. So I I spoke to you a little bit earlier about the experience in COVID um, and that was a really hard time and the public service, was a lot was demanded of the public service. But there was a real clear set of objectives in terms of the health of Victorians. And I was really impressed by how committed 
um, public servants were to um, working incredible hours and, and and doing all they could to deliver under in, intense pressure. So my only other comment I'd make is that if you hire well, you have, have to give your team the benefit of the doubt in the sense that most of the people you hire really want to do a good job and it's about finding out how you can best use their skills, working out what their strengths and their weaknesses are and, and thinking about how you structure your team to and how you manage them to bring that out. So again, yeah, I think predominantly about getting the best team you can, working with them to keep them energized, helping them to solve problems and and um, being really clear and aligned. Jim Round, great to talk to you. Best of luck in the new role and many thanks for your time today. Thanks, Justin.